So, <clears throat> welcome, everybody. Your journey here, some of you kind of a big journey. <laughs> it's a, a great, really great joy and honor to uh, be here with you. Uh, a retreat that I know people aren't supposed to have favorite retreats, but this is my favorite retreat. (laughs) And to be here spending these next uh, two weeks with you in really quite a a unique and special way. And I'm very uh, delighted to introduce our movement teacher, Wynn Fricke. Wynn has come to uh, work with us, to offer you uh, movement practice all the way from Minneapolis. She's a long-standing Buddhist practitioner in the Theravada tradition. And she's also a professional dancer and choreographer who uh, teaches somatic movement and dance and yoga. So thank you for joining us again. (laughs) And I'm also very delighted to welcome Sean Murphy. Sean is a writer and a writing teacher here in Taos at the university and in other places around the country, maybe around the world, with various workshops and seminars. He lives here in Taos. And Sean's been... um, a long-time Buddhist practitioner, also in the Zen tradition. And this is the fourth time that uh, Sean has uh, been teaching the writing component of this retreat. So thank you for being here again. The only man in our group this time. (laughs) We're glad you're here. So, as we enter into retreat, each one alone and also together as a group, we're creating, or maybe more accurately, co-creating a temporary village, a temporary uh, spiritual practice community. As we begin this period of commitment to exploring and cultivating and deepening our inner life, deepening our understanding, insight into the nature of things. And in this retreat, using our essential creative energy as one of the vehicles. I think for many, many people there's a tremendous amount of time and energy spent, or maybe more accurately, expended, cultivating an outer life. Doing things and producing things, acquiring things, going places, being somebody, becoming somebody, becoming something. These next two weeks will be quite special and quite unique in that none of this is really important or will be asked of you in the ordinary ways of the seeming requirements and expectations of the world. So whether you've practiced in retreat numerous times before or if an extended intensive retreat time is quite new for you, you may know the experience that arises for many of us at the onset of a retreat. This sense of entering into sacred space and time, of entering into a kind of sanctuary, both within our surroundings and within ourselves. And for me, whether I'm teaching or entering into a period of intensive 
practice myself, there's always this feeling in my heart of entering into sacred time and space. And when I moved in here this morning, I really touched that again. The sacredness of all of the life surrounding us, the incredible diversity and natural rhythms of life happening all around us here, the weather and all of its changes, the changes in the light from light to dark, again to light and then again to dark. This midsummer season high up here in the mountains, with all of the ongoing changes that are happening, all of the forms of life, the community of beings that we share this place with, the birds and insects and various other creatures, large and small. And of course the trees, myriad trees, flowers, all sorts of other manifestations of plant life surrounding us. And then the air itself. All of this, all of it, constantly changing, beginning and ending, birthing and dying. The natural world, so close, so close around us, so easily accessible, so easily available to connect with here. It's really a great gift that we're not separate from, a great gift that holds us in itself. And this natural world is a great teacher of the sacred. And the perfectly natural fluidity of diversity and change that just simply is. It's really a mirror of the truth of ourself, our nature as nature. So if we consider that nature is really no problem to itself, no problem to itself in itself, we can actually learn from this mirror of naturalness, the just-isness, the just-beingness, we could say, the absolutely open-hearted presence in a certain way of this perfectly natural world. I think it's really no surprise that humans are drawn to places like this. Places where untarnished nature and beauty are so easily accessible. There's a very natural, open-hearted connection available to us here in moments of a simple, clear presence, when we really take the time, when we really, truly take the time to arrive and to be, to really just simply be. So for instance, maybe today, with the late afternoon mountain light, tomorrow morning with an early morning sunrise, or the changing colors at the close of a day, changing sky colors at the close of a day, or all afternoon today here, the sounds and the changing light of an afternoon monsoon rain, which we'll have an opportunity to uh, observe and experience quite a number of times while we're here or just simply and open-heartedly seeing the particulars of how summer displays itself in small and larger ways. And of course, along with any of this, moments of a silent, simple, clear presence in your body, heart, and mind any time of the day, any time of the night, 
there's a very wonderful and symbiotic and expanding energy that we're both partaking of and adding to in a place like this. One day in the 92nd year of her life, my mother stopped for a few moments during our daily out-of-doors walk, and she stooped over, looking silently and for quite a long time at a flower that was very full in its blooming liveliness. And after a couple of moments, she just simply said, it's great to be alive. Probably each one of us has had some maybe unexpected or unsuspected and maybe even exceptional moments during times of simple presence. These moments of a clear, unfettered attention, which we could call moments of spiritual attention. Our heart, mind, opens and relaxes and eases in the midst of a simple, direct presence with things. And the natural world is often the place where this happens for us most easily, at least at first. Sometimes in these moments of spiritual attention, it's as though we fall through ordinary appearances. We fall through ourselves, fall through our usual habitual selves into an intuitive place of the essence of things. Our heart, our mind opens with an unfettered receptivity, a kind of radical acceptance in which there's a very deep connection sense of connection and possibly a sense of selflessness or what's sometimes called a wholesome emptiness both inwardly and outwardly. And then we might touch the boundlessness, the wonder, the very transient, constantly changing radiance of life. For maybe just a moment, we might dissolve with a boundless heart, mind, out of our seemingly separate, solid, static sense of self into the surprise of the moment, the unexpected surprise of the reflection of the truth and wonder of it all the just isness of it all, the surprise of a momentary experience of a not-separate self. For just a moment we may wake up to this sense, this unexpected surprise, the reflection of the heart, the mind's really true connection in this simple, unconditional moment. This is where the essential energy of creativity resides and where it blossoms from. This is the root, the basis for our exploration over these next two weeks. And so... Fortunately, here we are. (laughs) And during these retreat days, we have the great gift of being taken care of in a very beautiful and very simple way. All of our basic needs are met. While you're here, life is pared down. 
pared down, simplified from your usual daily activities and demands and seeming needs. There's really not much to do over these next days. Sitting, walking, eating, sleeping a little, or maybe more than a little, (laughs) listening, engaging in some moving and seeing, drawing, and writing. And most importantly, cultivating and paying attention to your particular experiences of body, heart, and mind. So compared to the ways of the world, there's really not very much to do over these next two weeks, which is a good thing to remember. Because some of you may have such a strong habit of keeping busy that you just may go on creating all sorts of things to do simply out of habit. So in this light, one of the things that we're practicing while we're here is what we could call renunciation. Letting go of busyness. Letting go of the usual distractions that you use, that you engage in to try to relax out of all of the busyness. And what a great gift this is, this renunciation. It's really not at all usual in our culture to take the time to engage our energy in this way to really simplify our life and to spend time looking inward. To come to a place like this to be, to really just simply be, not to become anything or anybody, and not to fill up the mind with more stuff, but really, again, to just simply be. Connecting, and looking inward, looking directly at your experience just as it is in the moment. And so we begin together here in a kind of sanctuary, being here together in this place of safety and protection, this place that holds and engenders deep respect and acceptance, It's really a valuable gift that each of you have given to yourself for these next two weeks and that you give to each other simply by being here together with each other. I think for just about everybody there are many different feelings that come up at the onset of a retreat. So I'll list a few. Maybe some excitement for some of you. Joy. Maybe some nervousness. Some anxiety, worry. Maybe a sense of delight. Maybe a sense of relief. And the list could go on. Lots of energy moving through our body and mind and heart even for people who have sat many, many retreats. For myself, in teaching or in beginning a personal retreat, many of these same flavors of energy move through my mind and heart and body. It's really our human nature, entering into something new, because it's always new. So entering into something new, a little added energy moving through our body and heart that has many, many different tones to it. And how very fortunate it is that we're embodied as we are in this human form, this precious human existence making it possible to practice, 
making it possible to be able to look within and to cultivate a pure, kind, and balanced heart-mind that moves us towards the possibility of the liberation that clear insight into the nature of things brings. We're actually a minority here on this earth. We're a minority in this universe. And of course, who knows beyond? So if you think about it, for instance, insects are much more prevalent than humans on this planet. A friend who lives here in Taos or lives down in Taos and uh, owns and runs a plant nursery told me that there are 200 million bugs, as she put it, per human on the planet. 200 million per each of us. So, how fortunate, really, to be embodied in the way that we are. This human heart, mind, and body are really the most conducive towards developing kindness, concentration, joy, equanimity, and the great gift of, gift of understanding, wisdom. Because of the particular mixture that each one of us has of both pleasure and pain. There's actually just enough of each. Sometimes a little more of one, sometimes a little more of the other, and at times some big handfuls of one and seemingly not very much, or if any, of the other. But the truth is that it changes. It changes back and forth within a week, daily, even within moments, if we're really paying attention. So really this human realm offers the best conditions that we could ask for. There are beings that primarily live in what could be called the lower realms, where the intensity of suffering is so great that it's impossible or nigh unto impossible to develop the wholesome qualities of mind and heart needed for practice. And I'm sure that each one of us in this room have been in those lower realms at times and know this place of tremendous fire and contraction. That place where it feels impossible to be present with our experience, where it seems impossible to connect with goodness, acceptance, kind-heartedness, joy, compassion, or any degree of equanimity, let alone wisdom. And there are the higher realms, what could be called the higher planes of existence, where everything is so blissful that there's little inspiration to practice. And I am absolutely certain that each one of us in this room have also tasted this, at least moments of it, where it all seems just perfect for a moment or two or maybe a little longer. Life is utterly blissful. And there's no inspiration to do anything else. If we have a practice, it might just fly right out the window during these blissful moments. We forget that life isn't always so blissful. That we don't always get what we want. That life doesn't always go our way. In the perfect moments, it's easy to forget that we still have our spiritual work to do. 
So this realm that we live in most of the time, this is the place. This is the place we can open to our perfectly natural capacity of open-heartedly connecting within ourselves and in relationship to others. Letting the inherent, intuitive understanding of the true nature of things unfold and blossom. It's said that if all of the world were water and a wooden ring one foot in diameter was thrown upon the water and then blown about by the winds, it's said that a blind turtle surfacing once every hundred years would put its neck through this wooden ring more easily than one can obtain a precious human existence. We're a rare species within the enormous breadth of life of all the the life forms on this planet. There's an ancient teaching that says those who have a precious human existence with all of the conditions and opportunities and blessings in place to meet the Dhamma, to practice the Dhamma, to practice the way of truth, to practice the way of the heart, that these beings are as rare as daytime stars. And so, here we are, a room full of daytime and nighttime stars. For the next little while now, I'd like to just begin exploring mindfulness with you. And tomorrow evening we'll go uh, into more depth with this essential aspect of our practice. So, considering for a moment, have you ever had the experience of getting to know someone and finding out that they're not at all like your initial preconditioned perceptions and judgments of them were. Probably we've all had something of that experience. Without mindfulness, we're often caught up and unaware of our initial perceptions and reactions to things because we're so blindly run by our conditioned habitual ways. Without mindfulness we could say that our relationship to most all of our experience is like this. Everything we see, everything we hear, smell, taste, touch, Everything we think without mindfulness is immediately interpreted back to us in conformity with our habitual thought patterns, our habitual ways of experiencing. And we're not aware of it. What this means is that we're living at a distance from experience. We're living at a distance from life itself. And this can be like a vicious circle that feeds itself, that feeds the conditioning. And we become more and more and more on automatic, more robotic, kind of like our computers. You know, you push the key on the computer and out pops what's already in there. Meaning in this case, our habitual conditioned reactions. So, mindfulness. Mindfulness and investigation are both very important in this process of exploring the true nature of things, which includes the true nature of ourselves, and in cultivating our capacity to connect and manifest fluid, open-hearted 
creative expression. We have, all of us, have so many long-standing and deep habits that we're not aware of. Habits, in fact, that keep us closed off, shut down. We could say that mindfulness is essentially about bringing everything into a very clear, sharp focus internally to really see things as they truly are. Maybe seeing and knowing as though for the first time. And that's helpful, really helpful. Mindful presence is a powerful way of changing our mind, changing our heart, changing the way that we relate to ourselves, to people, to things and situations in the world. Connecting with an open-hearted, clear awareness allows the release and the transformation of our painful, unskillful habits. It's very, very powerful. And so I offer you a definition of mindfulness that I think will be helpful as we explore the notion of self and the reality of no self or not self in relationship to the various creative modalities that you'll be engaging in during these next two weeks. Mindful awareness is about paying a kind of extraordinary attention a non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting attention to present moment experience, both your inner experience and in relationship to outer phenomena. And I'll repeat that because I think it's not our usual way of relating to experience paying a kind of extraordinary attention, a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting attention to present moment experience, our inner experience and in relationship to outer phenomena. It's really not our usual training to be so present in the moment with what's happening in our heart and our mind and our body and in relationship to what's occurring right in front of us and around us. And so we train the heart. We train the mind slowly and with great care to just simply see and know what is. What is this? How is it right here? Right now? And sometimes, as this unfolds and blossoms, sometimes it might feel like a kind of magical relationship to things. And by magic, I don't mean the magician's magic that creates an illusion and then pulls us into that illusion. The seeming magic of mindful awareness is the magic of a connected, interested, open-hearted, mindful presence that takes us out of the illusion, out of delusion, and brings us directly into reality. And so we have really two wonderful weeks ahead of us. This unique and wonderful practice opportunity, offering us a time of exploration, surprise, joy, and insight. Through the process of movement, seeing, drawing, 
and writing will intuitively investigate what it is that stops up the creative energy that's an absolutely natural part of our humanness and what it is that allows this essential energy to flow freely within each of us. Some of the time, this might not be so easy. And at sometimes it somewhat might, might be somewhat challenging. But all the while, your practice here also includes the potential of bringing forth amazement, awe, joy, beauty, and illumination. Previous students of this retreat have spoken about how this emphasis on exploration and inquiry rather than expertise offers a bridge to help carry their practice into their daily lives. As we enter into this period of sustained practice, there are a few specific supports that are very readily available for you. So I'd now like to just briefly take a look at these uh, during this last part of our first evening together. Your first support is the wonderful gift of silence. This silence that gently holds us in itself. Silence is really quite amazing in certain ways. It doesn't expect anything. It doesn't judge. Silence is infinitely patient, boundlessly spacious, open, allowing, and accepting. This container, we could say, of silence that has no boundaries and that everything comes out of and returns to. And of course, within the silence, there are sounds. All kinds of sounds that arise and pass. At times you'll hear the sound of my or Wynne's or Sean's voice and possibly other voices as well. Maybe you'll hear sighs, maybe cries, maybe laughs, footfalls and other body-moving sounds. Possibly the occasional roar of engines, certainly the sounds of birds, insects and maybe coyotes. There'll be wind and rain sound, maybe the rumble of thunder and a crack of lightning. The myriad sounds of human sounds and the sounds of the natural world, all arising and passing in the midst of silence. And sometimes we interpret sound as noise. And I think it's important to note that this is actually an interpretation and to notice it, to watch it. Is this or that sound noise? And what happens if it's noise, if it's being interpreted as noise? Are you relaxed? Is your heart open to simply hearing, simply receiving the sound? Or is there a contraction, some form of aversion, a feeling of resistance or a feeling of being disturbed? All of which creates a sense of separation. If it's just a sound, our relationship to it is one of an open-hearted presence of acceptance, meaning just simply and directly connecting with, hearing, and knowing. Knowing the tone or the quality of the sound, which you might 
perceive as pleasant or maybe you perceive it as unpleasant. Along with knowing, sensing the arising and passing nature of the sound itself. And of course, as we all know, we're not always in this relationship to sound. So with an open heart, an open mind, just mindfully notice. Notice your relationship and response or reaction to sound and noticing it without judgment in the midst of silence. Sometimes within silence it feels as though all of the windows of the world, all of the windows of the universe, of life itself, have been thrown wide open. And when this is our experience, we may have a sense of a very wonderful freshness, as though an open-hearted receptivity and fresh clarity have been let in. An amazing thing about silence, when we really truly begin to hear it, when we drop into it, is that we find it's not dead. It's not flat. It's alive. It charges the air, we could say. I've been told that the Thais have a number of words for silence that delineate its very specific qualities. It can be helpful and even illuminating to bring awareness to the qualities of silence. It's aliveness. It's really a precious aspect of retreat life. And some people at the onset of a retreat might feel some anxiety about being silent, not only for a few moments, but for whole days, and in this case, whole weeks, and in the company of others. It might seem like it'll be kind of awkward or strange or maybe too difficult or it might seem like maybe it'll just be impossible. I can honestly say, and as many of you know for yourself, that most people, by the end of a retreat or often somewhere along the way, feel that the silence is one of the most precious aspects of retreat because it holds everything but doesn't hold on to anything. Everything just simply comes and goes in the spacious, patient acceptance of silence. And again, the key here is that you don't have to be anybody. You don't really have to be anybody special. You don't have to present yourself. You don't have to be a somebody or become a somebody. (laughs) You just, again, you just simply be. And what a great relief it is to just simply be. Silence is where we learn to listen see and to understand. In this container of silence lies the possibility of the boundless capacity of our heart to be known, to be experienced. This is where and how we begin to know our deepest, truest self or not-self where the notion of me, mine, and I evaporates into the truth of all things. We begin to know the selfless, interconnected, interdependent nature of all things. 
with these insights really coming directly from our own experience, not from the intellect. And we begin to find out that this is where the essential energy of creativity quite naturally flows from. So I'd like to offer just a a few, uh, very few practical, uh, helpful pointers, so to say, in relationship to inner and outer silence. The first, not purposely um, making eye contact unless it's appropriate in any specific circumstance, as it will be occasionally in this retreat. Really respecting and honoring your own and others' inner work. Eye contact can be a very powerful nonverbal form of communication. And as I said, in this particular retreat, there will be times when it's appropriate. The second uh, pointer is keeping any daily writing, other than when you're participating in the writing practice sessions, to a bare minimum. So really not writing the next chapter of your book, the next great poem. You might write the next great poem in the writing practice session, but you probably won't write the next chapter of your book unless it's a really short chapter. (laughs) But otherwise, keeping the daily writing to a very bare minimum. And thirdly, not reading books or magazines during the retreat. Not filling up the mind. There's already plenty in it. (laughs) So really protecting the container of silence, inwardly and outwardly. So this is the first support, silence. And I always like to take some time to explore it at the onset of a retreat because there's so much more to it than just not talking. And then we'll briefly go over the next two supports. The second support is taking refuge. And people take refuge in all kinds of things. In all of the various things, the stuff, the material world on the physical plane. And also in various ideas and beliefs and conjectures on the mental plane. We could call this virtual refuge, which actually then creates virtual happiness in this constantly changing ephemeral world. So taking refuge in the context of supporting our practice. What does it mean in this context? Well, one of the ways we might recognize and experience refuge is as a place of shelter, a place of protection and safety, a sacred space and place. I came across a dictionary definition of refuge. It said, it's a port of shelter to vessels in stormy weather, which is very certainly relevant to some periods of our practice. Refuge is often experienced as a place of strength and clarity, both inwardly and also outwardly, such as the strength and the clarity of those around us, our teachers, our spiritual friends who are on the path with us. And in the context of the Dhamma, we take refuge in what are often spoken about as the three jewels or the three treasures. The first being the Buddha, which for many people means the historical Buddha, Gautama Buddha, taking refuge in what we could call our Buddha. And this can bring inspiration and energy into our practice. We might reflect on the purity of the Buddha's heart and mind. 
the heart that's completely free from anguish and confusion, a heart that's free from all suffering. We might reflect on the great and amazing accomplishments of the Buddha, which then may inspire us towards a more sustained and greater effort in our own practice. And lastly, an important aspect of taking refuge in the Buddha is that we're taking refuge in our own innate, awakened nature. Taking refuge in the truth of ourselves, what's sometimes called our original face. Our true nature isn't something other than us, isn't somewhere outside of us, isn't something to get, but right here in our heart to be known. So from this perspective we could say that we're that taking refuge in the Buddha is a symbol of faith. Faith in our deepest and most expansive potential. The second jewel or treasure that we take refuge in is the Dhamma, or in Sanskrit, the Dharma. I usually use the Pali word, Dhamma. The teachings of the truth, the way of things, the universal laws, the teachings of the Buddha. We could say that taking refuge in the Dhamma is taking refuge in what is actually true, moment to moment to moment. Taking refuge in how it really truly is. So when we take refuge in the Dhamma, we're aligning ourselves with the practice of mindful awareness. Aligning ourselves with the practice of insight, of understanding. This practice that asks us to look directly and deeply at how it is. And in this, dropping our expectations and our habitual patterns of thinking, seeing, and knowing, as well as the habit of relying on others to tell us how it is. So this second jewel, taking refuge in the jewel of the Dhamma. The third jewel that we take refuge in is the Sangha, which is a Pali word usually translated as community. And traditionally and historically, the Sangha is the monastic community. The Buddhist monks and nuns, those who have totally devoted themselves to the, their lives towards liberation. Since the time of the Buddha and up until quite recently, it's primarily been the monastic Sangha who have held and offered the teachings and the practices. And it really, truly, if it wasn't for this monastic Sangha over the centuries, all of us wouldn't be sitting here together in this way this evening. In more recent times, the Sangha has come to mean not only the monastic Sangha, but also the community of lay teachers and lay practitioners. This Sangha right here. There are moments when I take refuge in the Sangha when there's this sense of the incredible, vast expanse of human beings in this world, past and present. This incredible Dhamma family that I'm connected to through this process of awakening. And it brings a great deal of inspiration and faith in the process and faith in myself as I engage in the process. I recently uh, heard about an app (laughs) for tablets and cell phones 
called Insight Timer. Maybe some of you know about it. Besides offering us various bell tones to begin and end our meditation practice, this wonder of of the modern world tells us how many people anywhere in the world are meditating at the very moment that we look at it using this app to ring the bell for their practice. It's pretty astounding. Hundreds of people. Thousands of people. (laughs) And so we're taking refuge in each other. Right here. Right now. The support, encouragement, and inspiration that we receive from and give to each other. So very necessary. It's so important and so necessary uh, in this sometimes difficult process. As you all know, our culture here in the U.S., and uh, in New Zealand and also in Israel we have an Israeli student who's not in the room at the moment but who just arrived Uh, none of these cultures really encourage or support are really encouraging or supportive in relationship to engaging in this journey there are, are of course cultures in our world that are encouraging and supportive towards taking this journey. And as we make our way, we find that it's very difficult, if not impossible, to practice totally alone. We need Sangha. We need the support, inspiration, and strength of community to engage in and continue along the journey. So, taking refuge, wonderful support as you all practice together over these next two weeks. Refuge in the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And the third support for all of us during this retreat is the practice of sila. Sila is a Pali word that means living ethically in relationship to all forms of life. Living with a very deep moral sensitivity and respect towards and with all forms of life, including oneself. And the Buddha offered these, offered these particular teachings and practices in the form of precepts or guidelines. Guidelines meaning that they're not rigid rules laid on us from the outside, but rather the really the basis and the ground of our practice. And the underlying principle of the precepts is non-harming. The intention and the practice of sila is to connect to all forms of life with a caring heart, honoring life in all of its forms, and then to act from this place. And just a few words from the Buddha regarding this. This is from the Dhammapada, called Harmlessness. All beings tremble before violence. All fear death. All love life. See yourself in others. Then whom can you hurt? What harm can you do? One who seeks happiness by hurting those who seek happiness will never find happiness. For your sister, your brother, is like you. She, he, wants to be happy. Never harm her, never harm him. And when you leave this life, you too will find happiness. As our practice deepens and matures, we come to understand 
what brings happiness and contentment and ease on the deepest level and what brings suffering and confusion, what brings dis-ease. Any one of these guidelines might light up as a point of practice for us at any moment during this retreat. During sitting, walking, eating, during the movement or the seeing drawing or the writing practice. Bringing our attention right into the present moment's experience. Offering an opportunity for the clarity of mindfulness, investigation and wisdom to arise. I'd like to share a particular rendition of these guidelines because this particular rendition very clearly tells us why these guidelines are essential for a peaceful life. And this is from a woman named Stephanie Kaza from the Green Gulch Zen Farm. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. (coughs) Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures. The Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. In this retreat, we'll be practicing with the five precepts for lay practitioners, with the refuges and precepts being offered at the beginning of each Dhamma talk in the evening, evening Dhamma talk, which isn't every evening, but the evenings that we do have Dhamma talks will begin with the refuges and the precepts. And this evening we'll take the precepts in a few moments at the end of this talk. So the three supports that are here for all of us over these next two weeks, silence, refuge in the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and the precepts or guidelines. And I'd like to close the retreat with, or close the, open the retreat, close the Dhamma talk, with a poem by, uh, two poems, the first by David White, called Tillico Lake. (coughs) In this high place, it's as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface. Say the old prayer of love and open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There, in the cold light, reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face. And some words from the writer Anais Nin.
And then the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. And let's just sit quietly for just a moment. And thank you for listening to the Dhamma.